Well, good morning to each of you. It's, it's good to see all of you. Allow me to pray and ask God to help us understand His Word this morning. Dear God, I want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for this gathering of your people. And we pray, Lord, as we gather as your people, may we come and encounter you. May your word speak to us. And may your word stir our hearts to obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As some of you will know, uh, if you've seen my Instagram post or my Facebook post, you will know that I enjoy taking photographs of birds. And during one of my trips, not too far, not too long ago, maybe about a couple of months ago, uh, as I was trying to kind of take a photo of a bird, I realized my, my master right eye was slightly hazy. So I thought initially it was my camera, time to change my camera. I tried the autofocus, I, I tried the, the, the focusing ring, and I looked at the image from the, the, the LCD screen, and it was sharp and clear. So it cannot be my camera, so no chance to change. Something must be wrong with my eye. So I think back, I thought, wow, maybe all the different, all the numerous procedures and all the injections that I had on my right eye because of my retina tear and because of the retina wall leakage, maybe that has caused some problem. So later I found out from my eye doctor, my routine check with him every three months, uh, he says, hey, you know, Joe, I think your the lens that you placed in for your cataract a year, or two, a year or two ago has now become slightly hazy. I said, oh, no wonder. That explains why, you know, it looked hazy through my viewfinder. See, it does not affect my daily activity, so I can see you clearly now with no haze. But because I'm using both of my eyes to provide me with a sharp image. But it becomes obvious and I'm using only my right eye to see like photography. So my doctor jokingly said that, well, I could just laser it away, $1,000. And I look at him and say, no thanks. Well, at least for now, until it impacts my daily life. See, when our vision is not sharp or has become cloudy, we are not able to see things clearly. For those of us who suffer from back myopic, we'll know how paralyzing it can be when we cannot find our glasses. Then the main trust of today's passage, Mark 10, is about seeing clearly in a few areas of discipleship. But you must situate Mark 10 as part of the wider passage, wider context. So Mark 10 is part of the wider segment of text starting from Mark 8.22. It began with Mark 8.22, the account of the two miracles of healing a blind man in Bethsaida. He first saw people walking around like trees after Jesus laid his hand on him. His sight was only fully restored after the second laying of hands. And then it ends with Mark, 45, uh, Mark 10, 45 to 52, which we're reading today, on the healing of another blind man, Bethemius. And in this encounter, Bethemius' sights were restored immediately without the need for a second touched. And sandwiched between these two healing accounts is a series of accounts in which Jesus helped his disciples to refocus and to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So here in Mark 10, Mark highlighted three areas of, of refocusing, that they are on the same issue of marriage, entry into God's kingdom, and about greatness. So let us look at the first, the first refocusing. 
seeing marriage clearly. And from Mark chapter 10, verse 1 to 12. So as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he faced a series of entrapment by who? By the religious leaders. So in Mark 10, 1 to 12, the Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus with a very hot topic of divorce. Still a hot topic for us today. And Pharisee came up and ordered to, and in order to test him, ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So why is this a trap? See, the issue of divorce led to the imprisonment of John the Baptist. Remember that story? When he publicly charged Herod and Herodias for breaking God's law with their divorce and remarriage. See, what happened is this, isn't it? Herod divorced his wife, the daughter of Artus IV, to marry Herodias, also, who also divorced his, her husband, Philip. Sounds like a Korean drama, isn't it? Jesus could potentially incur political wrath and, have the, and suffer the same fate as John the Baptist. And depending on his, his response, he might also potentially incur the wrath of the rabbis from the different school of thoughts. But Jesus, wise as, as he is, did not answer their question. But he responded with a question instead. He asked them, what did Moses command? And Jesus, because Jesus knew in his heart that no answer would satisfy them since this is a test. But Jesus wants to take this opportunity to refocus their understanding and especially the disciples' understanding on marriage. So how did they respond? Their response, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. I want you to focus on the word later, on the word allowed. They knew that it's permissive rather than imperative. And they deliberately changed the word command when Jesus said, what, what did Moses command? To permit, or in some translation, allowed. So according to one commentator, they themselves do not dare to say that divorce was commanded in the law, even though it is allowed. See, but Jesus took one step further, and he wants to show them that the law neither permits, uh, neither, uh, permit or command, but it's actually concessive. What Jesus means is that the hardness of man's heart that led to willful and heartless abandonment of their wives in Israel. So what is happening here is this. A husband who do not like the wife cooking or doesn't, look the, doesn't like the look of the wife can just say, I divorce you. Women were very badly treated then. And by commanding men, not about divorce, but about to give a certificate of divorce, it means that this man cannot quietly divorce a woman without involving the elders or others in a society. And this was given as a protection. And hopefully, that will make the men think twice, think thrice, before initiating the divorce. But you so prevent this first husband 
from destroying the man's, the woman's remarriage by claiming her back later after she married to another man. Thus, God did not allow divorce. God limit the consequence and the damage done to the wives. God was, in fact, protecting the woman in a society back then. But the Pharisees were using this to trap Jesus. They are looking at loopholes. But Jesus is not interested at loopholes. Jesus wants to refocus their understanding of marriage to what God has ordained it to be. And he went on in Mark chapter 10, verse 6 to 9, say, from the beginning of creation, God made, men, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, men, let not men separate. The right understanding of marriage provides the context for the right understanding of divorce. When God ordained marriage in Genesis chapter 2, God willed it for men and women to live as one. The union of the two become one. This union of one flesh is not meant to be separated until death. Therefore, if this one flesh is not meant to be separated, then divorce must not be part of the marriage covenant. However, the sinfulness and the hardness of men, a man and woman, broke what God has intended to be good. The willful and heartless abandonment of women, the sexual immorality, adultery, and anything that breaks the union is a manifestation of that sinful heart. So for those of us who are married, we must pray. We must pray for God to guard our hearts against these areas of sins. And we must pray for friends, our friends who are married, that God will also guard their hearts. I know this is one of the issues that we probably talk about in your DG, but I just want to highlight two things here. Biblically, the scripture clearly highlights only two situations where divorce is allowed. And the first has to do with the sinful heart that leads to adultery. And Jesus taught that in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 32. He said, it was also said, whoever divorced his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, make her commit, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus highlighted Deuteronomy 24 verse 1, similar to the Mark passage here, and gave one exception where divorce is allowed. And then there is a sexual unfaithfulness in the marriage. And this principle, I believe, applies to men as well. The second situation can be found in 1 Corinthians. Paul addressed the issue of unbelieving spouses in 1 Corinthians 7. We must be clear here that the reason for having an unbelieving spouse is due to one of the spouse coming to faith and the other not. So possibly it could be, as the gospel came into the place, these two persons heard hear the gospel, one believed and one did not. And so Paul, I believe Paul, 
is addressing that situation. Paul is not condoning a marriage between a believer and a non-believer. So back to the context. In this context, Paul actually called the believer to stick it up in the marriage. So 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 13, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she must, should not divorce him. So Paul is still holding on to what God has ordained it to be. That divorce is not what God has allowed or planned to be, even in this situation. But however, Paul went on to say in verse 15, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So pastorally, they asked me, these are the two possible situations where God allowed divorce to take place, but it must be exercised with much prayer and wisdom. Nevertheless, the call from 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians 7 passage is to hold on. And I believe this principle would apply, would hold true even for in the situation of an unfaithful spouse because you can treat the unfaithful spouse as a non-believer. But however, in our current modern context, isn't it? I, I said earlier on, this issue of divorce is a hot topic. It's continued to be. Divorce on the rise, even among believers. And I said that there are many nuances in a marriage relationship, and each couple faces different challenges and issues. This sermon is not specifically about divorce, Thus, the coverage is limited to the text. But if you need to speak to somebody, speak to someone about your marriage, or you had a marriage on the rock, feel free to speak to myself or any other pastors, and we would love to journey with you and walk you through this very difficult and tough situation. But in every different situation that we are in, I pray that we need to guard our hearts, guard ourselves against the deceitfulness of our own heart. And in today's passage, Jesus is challenging the Pharisees' understanding of marriage. They were trying to find loopholes for easy divorce, but Jesus wants to refocus their understanding of marriage so that when they see marriage clearly, then they will be able to look at divorce from a different perspective. The second refocusing is for the disciple and all around to see the kingdom of God clearly in Mark 10, 13 to 31. Do you still remember Let's Carnival? Long time ago, isn't it? We hope and wish that we can Let's Carnival soon. So one of the tasks that the BBGB ministry uh, was placed under uh, is we always asked or tasked to take care of the guests of honour, mainly the president of Singapore and, and his or her his spouse to take them through and transit them through the different checkpoints safely and smoothly. See, as the guests of honour move from point to point, there are always people wanting to shake hands with them or take a selfie with them or wifi with them. And children often comes out and wanting to say hello because when was the last time you see the President of Singapore? But every of such stops results in delays. 
And I always hear in my walkie-talkie, hey, move on, move on. I always say, cannot, cannot. But if I were to be over-focused on the timing of the program, I think the president would not stop to talk to anybody because I would have moved him on very, very fast. But in Mark 10, 13, the disciples were rebuking the people for bringing what? Bringing children to encounter Jesus. See, in the ancient world, children has no status. And they're often ignored, and they're often not given the access because they bring no benefit to any given relationship. Thus, the disciples see the children as a hindrance. However, Jesus was very upset with his disciples for stopping the children from drawing near to him. Jesus saw the children as those who are loved by the heavenly Father, and he welcomed them to his, into his embrace. And Jesus even called the people, the disciples and the people around, to be like a child in order to receive God's kingdom. It's amazing, isn't it? And how much our Lord Jesus, our God, loves children. And so he says in Mark 10, 14 to, 14 to 15, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. So what does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, firstly, a child contributes nothing to a relationship. In fact, they are always requiring help. So to receive the kingdom of God is like a child is to humbly accept that we bring nothing. We bring nothing to this entering of the kingdom of God. It's 100% God at work to save us. Secondly, a child is unashamed in asking for help. They need help, they ask. And turning to Jesus requires us to recognize our need for help and be unashamed to ask that from Jesus. Remember the man who had a son with an unclean spirit? He was desperate. No one could help him. He turned to Jesus. And when Jesus confronted his heart, he prayed this prayer. He said this to Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's what it is, isn't it? As we come before Jesus, we come in a state of helplessness. But do we come and say, Jesus, help my unbelief. Help my lack of trust. Help me to put my 100% unto you. Thirdly, a child will also trust wholeheartedly the person who cares for them. It's quite easy, in a sense, to care for a child when the child trusts you. Because the child has no one to turn to except you. And there's the same attitude that we need to bring as we come to Jesus. Jesus is not one of the many help that we can get on this earth. Jesus is the only help that we have to navigate the minefield in this broken world. 
See, the children's account provided the backdrop to Jesus' dialogue with this rich young ruler. This rich young ruler ran up to Jesus, kneeled before him, knelt before him. His postures differ from the rest of the Pharisees, the religious leader. This young ruler sincerely wanted to know what it takes to inherit eternal life. And to inherit eternal life is similar to entering into God's kingdom. He is asking, how can I, what must I do to enter God's kingdom? So what in essence is this man asking? If you look at the context, I think, I believe, this young ruler wanted Jesus to affirm that he has done all that he could to secure his place in God's kingdom. I just need an endorsement. But Jesus took him seriously. Jesus started with the Ten Commandments, a good starting point because if one is able to obey every single of the commandments with all his hearts and mind, then this person truly can inherit eternal life. And so this is what Jesus said in Mark 10, 19. If you've got the Bible with you, you can turn to it. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not default, honour your father and your mother. How did this young ruler reply? Sir, I've kept all this from my youth. A perfect Jew. He crossed the T, dot the I. And at this point, you expect an A grade, isn't it? Or maybe A plus. And he will expect Jesus to say, well done, my good and faithful young ruler. You are in God's kingdom. Nah. Jesus said nothing of that. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. I'm awed by the phrase, love him. Mark is interesting as he wrote, that he could just leave that part out, isn't it? But no, he put that in and it just shows the deep love that Jesus had for this man. Jesus really wanted this man to be saved. And out of this, his love for this young man, he said the same thing to him as he said to the crowd in chapter 8, verse 34 to 35, which you read in the opening passage. And calling the crowd to him and with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is not against wealth here. Don't get Jesus wrong. Jesus is asking for his 100% surrender. Nothing deserves to be more important than giving oneself 100% to Jesus. Anyone who is not able to deny himself, that is to put Jesus as the most important, will not be able to take up the cross of persecution and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. There's another passage in Matthew 6.21. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, 
your heart will be also. So this young man, this young ruler, disheartened by, he, by the saying, went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. His heart was really on his wealth. That is where his treasure was. His heart is not on following Jesus, the ultimate treasure that we can find. If this young ruler who take all the commandment boxes cannot be safe, the disciple is wondering to themselves, and he asks this question, who then, who then can be safe? And Jesus gave this response, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom of God and being saved is a total impossibility for any given human being. Because why? Because of our sin. We are not good enough. We are not good enough. But God loved us as he loved that young man. God loved us and want us to be safe. And God loved us and gave his son Jesus, who went to the cross for our sin, and make us entering the kingdom of God possible. So with men, it's impossible. With God, it's possible. Similarly, it's impossible for a child to provide for himself, to care for himself or herself. A child needs to put his or her trust in a trusted adult. Therefore, inheriting eternal life is entirely in the hands of God. Only God can make salvation possible. Only an absolute trust from us can make us a faithful disciple of Jesus. Nothing we can bring to the Lord Nothing we can bring to gain eternal life. The wealth that we have, the work that we do in, through our earthly pursuits amounts to nothing when our life comes to an end. The kingdom of God belongs to God. You can only be invited in. And God has invited in indeed. And we have to accept this invitation like a child surrendering ourselves 100% to God. But God does not shortchange us when we surrender everything to God. So the disciple was wondering, right, I've given up everything, Jesus. How about me? And Jesus said that, said, told them in Mark 29, 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake, for the God and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, and houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution in the age to come, eternal life. Often, all of us like to focus on the hundredfold, on all the blessing. I'm not sure whether we want to have so many brothers and sisters, some of us may not be, but we often omit these two words with persecution 
When, Jesus, when we walk in step with Jesus, we also walk in step in denying ourselves and taking up our cross. This is a hard saying of Jesus, isn't it? We can only pray for God to strengthen us to carry our cross and follow Jesus. We pray that as we deny ourselves, as we turn our eyes away from our earthly possession, God will open our eyes to see his kingdom clearly. And let's move on to our next point, seeing the greatness clearly in Mark 10, 32 to 45. If you continue to read the passage there, Mark 30, 31 leads nicely into Jesus' third passion prediction. This is the third time Jesus told the disciples about the persecution that will take place when they enter Jerusalem. The first one is 8.31, second one is 9.31. In Mark 10, 33 to 34, maybe read with me together. One, two, three. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will be condemned him to death and to deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. There is no shortcut, my brothers and in Christ. Jesus must fulfill what he needed to do on earth. In order for men to enter into the kingdom of God, we must have eternal life. The Son of Man must endure shame and injustice and be condemned as an innocent man. He must take up his cross and die a horrible death to open the way for us to enter into God's kingdom. But we know, we know that death will give way to life because the verse says, and after three days, he will rise. Similarly, there is no shortcut for all of us who follow Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we are also carrying our cross, the cross that our Lord Jesus Christ carried. Not in the same way that we'll be crucified, but we bear the same suffering as Jesus, or be prepared to bear the persecution that comes through our belief. But as we, as we enter that, as we go through that, as we carry our cross, we know that one day we will rise with Jesus. Jesus is our role model who endured the cross for our sake. The disciple once again failed to comprehend the depth and the implication of Jesus' mission on earth. They could not fully understand what it means for Jesus to go to the cross. And so James and John went up to Jesus with this request in verse 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. For those of us who have been reading through the Gospel of Mark, I wonder whether you are be like me. How can a disciple be so dense? This is the third time, isn't it? And in one of our leaders' uh, Bible study, some of us blurted, some of, some of them, some of the leaders blurted out, say, how can they be Botown now? No brain. Isn't, it, isn't that our expression when we hear this? Jesus took them at where they are. And Jesus told them, you do not know what you are asking for. You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? 
I'll be baptized at baptism that I baptized. And Jesus is alluding, pointing them back to the death that he will, receive, he will have and the persecution that will come after that. But the immediate response is this. We are able. Bring it on. And that response only goes to show that they are not seeing the suffering of Jesus clearly. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at the right hand of my to sit at the right hand or at my left is not for mine to grant, but it's for those from whom he has been prepared. What is Jesus saying here? You like it or not, whether you sit at my left or my right, you're going to be persecuted. Whether you sit at my left or my right, you're going to drink the cup of wrath, which the disciples will actually face post Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus wants to refocus their eyes on what true greatness looks like. Jesus said that I suffer, and greatness in God's kingdom means to serve and means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And so Jesus in verse 42 says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great one exercise authority over them. What is Jesus saying? A greatness is not lording over those people God has placed under their charge. To lord over to his means to the misuse of power for their own gain, or even to strip from one responsibility when it's pushed to the corner. We see how Herod and Pilate demonstrate this clearly. When they are pushed to the corner, one beheaded John the Baptist, one crucified Jesus. But in God's sight, in God's kingdom, it means to serve. So greatness in God's kingdom looks like this in verse 43. But it shall not be among you. But whoever will be great among you must be a servant. And whoever will not be first, will be first among you must be slave of all. Words such as servant and slave are never used hand in hand with greatness. But Jesus himself embodied that in his greatness. No one would deny that Jesus is a great man, a great teacher, and to the disciple, a great master. And Mark 10, 45 continues to read, For even the Son of Man, the great Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Our Lord Jesus, our Master, came to serve because of His servant-heartedness. You and I, the world, is able to receive salvation and receive forgiveness. So to see this greatness in God's kingdom clearly is not about sitting on the left on the right hand of God, but it's really asking, how can I serve? How can I serve like Jesus? As you come to the last portion of this passage, 
seeing faith in Jesus clearly in Mark 46 to 52. The last encounter with Jesus before he entered the vicinity of Jerusalem was the healing of Bethlehemus. Bethlehemus heard about Jesus. He was sitting at the roadside. He called out to Jesus, Son of David, Son of David. This acknowledgement of Son of David has this forward-looking or backward-looking to the King David, the descendant from King David, that will be Israel's greatest king, the long-awaited Messiah. And this blind man, who only hear about the work of Jesus, acknowledge and say, this man, this man, is the Christ. A very prophetic confession from this blind man. But what did the rest do? Just as a disciple turned away and rebuked the people who brought the children, the people around this blind man say, shut up, shut up. Keep quiet. He's blind. He benefits no one. He has no value to add to the society. Sit one corner, sit one corner. Shh, shh. But Jesus says, Jesus heard him and called out, let him come. Let him come. Jesus valued him. Jesus loved him just as he loved the children. And Jesus welcomed him into his embrace. And Jesus, Jesus, healed Bartimaeus. As I started this sermon at the beginning, the healing of the blind Bartimaeus is like the bookend that ends this segment of Mark's Gospel before we enter into Jerusalem. Bartimaeus received full sight because he put his faith in Jesus. And that's what Jesus says in 52, isn't it? And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately, he recovered his sight and followed him on his way. The disciples, the people around Jesus struggled to understand Jesus. They struggled to understand the kingdom of God. After three passion predictions, they can still, one, tell Jesus, don't do it. And here, tell Jesus, can I sit at your left and your right, please? Their hazy view of Jesus and his teaching will only become clear post-death, post-resurrection, and post-ascension of Jesus. And we can see exactly, isn't it? When, they, when that became clear to them, if you read the book of Acts, they were a totally different group of apostles. Same John, same Peter, same James, but hey, their passion, their love, they went all out to proclaim the good news. What has changed? I think this seeing clearly has caused them, has made them know what Jesus' main mission is on earth. Is our vision of God's kingdom of God clear? How are you seeing Jesus and his kingdom? 
See, we are confronted with three areas of discipleship here in Mark 10. How are we seeing marriage and divorce? For those of us who are married or getting married, how are we living out our marriages as God has ordained it to be? How are you resolving issues in your marriage? Do you resolve issues in your marriage with always the, the word divorce at the back of your mind? This is my last straw, this is my last straw, this is my last straw. Oh, help me, God. This is a difficult marriage. We are in a difficult situation. Help me, God. Help me, God. Go on on your knees and cry to the Lord. He said, how we should be seeing marriage? How assured are you about your entry into God's kingdom? Are you entering God's kingdom like a child? 100% surrendering, totally dependent upon God and upon nothing else and no one else? Or are you trying to work your way into salvation? Has your understanding of greatness been challenged by Jesus' servant-heartedness? How are you serving? Are you seeing greatness clearly through the lens of Jesus? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for calling us, saving us. We pray, Lord, as we read your word daily, as we sit under your word, help us to see your kingdom clearly. In the different areas of our life, and in the context today, our marriages, our entry into God's kingdom, and about greatness. Help us to see this area clearly through the lens of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.